0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Let's start with um, a guest who's been on this program on a number of occasions since that invasion of Ukraine began by the Russians. Dmitry Gurin is the member of parliament in Ukraine for Mariupol, a city that is really suffering and struggling, and as you know, there was a missile attack on the Kramatorsk train station, which killed at least 52 people, and uh, the Russians are now saying that they believe that, well, this is the tale they're telling, that it was Ukraine that fired on the train station. As I tweeted a couple of hours ago, next they'll be saying that it was the Ukrainian army that invaded Ukraine. Mr. Gurin, how are you, sir?
2: We have a war, you know, but we are a little bit used to it. It's talk okay. to us, pl- yeah. Talk
0: to us, please, about this uh, missile attack on the Krematorsk train station. Please talk to us about that.
2: Uh, Russia. Uh, it was a missile attack, and uh, Russia, of course, as always, uh, they said that. It's not them, uh, you're not, you know, in uh, 2014, they already said uh, it's not us uh, during invasion of Donbas. And uh, uh, let's stop uh, listening what Russia says, because uh, it's uh, the only reason they're saying is just to get our, you know, uh, time in this program, uh, that we will discuss what they're saying. Let's just uh, look what they're doing. Uh, they made this uh, missile strike uh, in uh, like five minutes uh, they had on the tele- telegram channels they had a news that uh it was a missile strike uh, on uh, uh ukrainian troops of ukrainian army and kramatorsk train station like and uh, of course they deleted uh, this uh, the messages when uh, they knew it was just civilians and more than 50 people uh, dead uh, with uh, that people that were injured, heavily injured. And uh, so we have uh, another war crime, that's all. But we have these war crimes every day in Ukraine now.
0: Yes, you and I last weekend spoke about uh, Bucha and you told us what was happening there. The world knows a lot more now than we did a week ago. And, of course, in your home city of Mariupol, the assaults on the civilian population, those that remain, continue. Speak to us, please, about uh, what you have found out most recently, maybe today, about Bucha and what's going on in Mariupol.
2: In Bucha, we are still finding and uh, finding more bodies. Uh, in, uh, we have one more small city near uh, Bucha. It's uh, Borodanka and uh, in Borodanka. And Bucha, uh, it's uh, like uh, pretty rich uh, suburbs of Kiev, uh, and Borodjanka is just a small city with uh, nine-story buildings of uh, Soviet Soviet time, uh, and uh, they uh, had a bombardment of Russian aviation with uh, dump bombs. You know, it's just non-controlled bombs that uh, that, are, that uh, plane just dropped them and uh, it was a uh, super powerful bombs uh, 500 uh, kilos of explosives and more and uh, they just uh, destroyed these 9 story buildings with people inside and uh, uh people who uh who stayed alive in borodyanka they said that they killed all who tried to uh get people out to, from from rubble uh so they just uh, killed uh, you know destroyed uh, uh, building some killed people and their goal is, uh, as we see now, was just to kill uh, as much people as they can. Uh, in Mariupol, the same situation, they don't open green corridors, they are deportating people uh, to, uh, uh, to Russia. And uh, for example, now I'm personally trying to get uh, one person out from the uh, Russian, uh, Russian territory of Russian Federation. Uh, yeah, he is uh, more than 70 years old, and uh, he has only a national Ukrainian passport, so he cannot uh, go legally out of uh, Russian Federation. And he was forced uh, to sign some papers that he uh, will not leave Russia during the next six months. And uh, like last two days, uh, he has uh, meetings with FSB with uh, uh, Rosgvardia and uh, with some people who, is, uh, who ask uh, uh, if uh, he was a, a witness to, some, uh, to any war crimes from Ukrainian army and so on. So they're trying to get more, uh, you know, for, for the TV shows, to, to get more people for the TV shows on the state TV channels. So deportation, uh, they really do deportation. Uh, It's uh, tens of thousands of people. uh, And uh, they, of course, they're without any rights in in Russia, on the Russian territory. And uh, it's uh, like something we have seen like 80 years ago last time.
0: Yeah. How are the people in your city of Mariupol, the civilians who've been struggling with out food, with very little water, how are they coping on a day-to-day basis now?
2: We we don't have now connection already several days uh, with uh, people uh, in Mariupol with civilians, uh, but uh, look they they eat pets. As I know, they they already there are cases where they eat, eat uh, dead bodies. So like this.
0: It is horrific to uh, to know what's going on in Ukraine, yes. what's being perpetrated by the Russians against the people of Ukraine. Your president, uh, Mr. Zelensky, has said that he's ready, that Ukraine is ready for a hard battle with Russia in the eastern regions. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of that, and what do you need from the west? What does Ukraine need right now from the western countries?
2: a big battle on uh, on the in, in the eastern ukraine is already started several days ago it's uh it's really uh big battle and uh, looks like it will be pretty bloody uh but uh, we don't have uh, other choice um no, so what do we need from international society uh first of all weapon because uh we have to stop this war on Ukrainian territory and uh, to beat Russia on Ukrainian territory. All this, uh, all, all of us, civilized world, we cannot uh, make possible that uh, this war will spread on the European Union territory. And as you see now, it's totally possible, totally possible. So we need uh, have uh, heavy uh, weapons, we need tanks, uh, we need armored vehicles, we need planes, we need air defense and missile defense uh because we need to to finish this war we need to kick out uh russian troops out of ukrainian charity it's not possible we have seen uh eight years ago what goes after you know this uh, freezing of uh, of the war and uh russia just uh, doesn't stop so we have to finish everybody sees now that uh, this war will have military solution not diplomatic solution and uh, we need now weapon to make this military solution because you know ukrainians they're fighting and they're resisting and they're uh and we will do it uh until you know until the victory or until the last man and uh but now for uh, european countries and uh, uh and our america and, and our north america partners america and canada is just economically reasonable to help us with weapon because uh, bombing of, uh, we've done bombs of, uh, you know, Polish cities uh, or, or, or Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania cities, uh, it uh, costs m- much more. It costs, m- it's, m- it's much more expensive to rebuild all of this. So yes. we need a weapon and it's, pro- and it's a really good decision for everybody now.
0: Let's talk about war crimes. It's been a major news story and uh, investigations going on all the time now about what war crimes are. Russia's President Vladimir Putin and his military in Ukraine are being accused of committing horrific war crimes against the civilian population of the country. So what charges might they face if they're ever inside a courtroom? What's considered a war crime? Michael Newton is a law professor at Vanderbilt University. He's an expert on terrorism, accountability, transnational justice, and conduct of hostilities, expert witness in terrorism-related trials, Re- admitted to the counsel list of the International Criminal Court, most recently the editor of the United States Department of Defense Law of War Manual. The professor served as senior advisor to the ambassador-at-large for war crimes issues in the United States State Department. And he also served in the U.S. Army for 21 years, where he had responsibility as Chief of Operational Law with the Army Special Forces Command Airborne during Operation Desert Storm. Professor Newton, thank you very much for joining us. How is war crime defined?
3: Well, I appreciate you having having me on and, and in particular directing your audience at these really important substantive and political issues. Uh, you know, war crime is simply a violation of this established body of law and really boils down to one of three prohibited areas. The law of war regulates how we fight, and so there's a whole subset of rules there. It regulates against whom we fight uh, and the, the, the entitlement of personal protection, et cetera, and a whole subset of rules there. And then this is the thing that people are just now realizing. It also regulates uh, occupation law. When you're in control of an area, the duties that you have towards the civilian population comes straight out of this body of law. So you put it all together, violations of this body of law in the colloquial we call war crimes.
0: So I want to get into this a little more with you in, and in detail as we go through our interview, but do some nations refuse to accept the definitions of, of war crimes, refuse to accept uh, the directions of the International Criminal Court?
3: Well, that's you know, that's actually two different questions. Yes, there are some that refuse to, uh, uh, they just have different policy prerogatives with regard to the ICC. But on the big subject of war crimes, no, there's pretty much unanimity across the international community. All countries uh, sign up to this body of law. There's no there's no gray zone here. There's no pockets where this body of law does not apply. Um, And you saw that in the International Criminal Court when we negotiated the elements of crimes, which are the details of all the genocide offenses, all the crimes against humanity, all the war crimes, uh, that document is, ad- is adopted by consensus. So there's no country in the world that is not bound by the law of war.
0: So Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime
3: are signatories to this. Well, there's no question, yes. Uh, and you know the law of war is found, most people will have heard of the Geneva Conventions, Fewer will have heard of the protocols to the Geneva Conventions, but there's this web of law, the Conventional Weapons Convention, the Certain Conventional Weapons Convention, uh, the Protocols there too, uh, the, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological Weapons Convention. There's a, a scattershot of law here, uh, but the bottom line is every country in the world is bound, which is why you see the Russians going out of their way. Uh, you know, v- uh, The violence has to cover itself with lies. That's why they're going out of their way to say, oh, this was appropriate because they know that the war crime is impermissible. Then they're doing that over and over and over again in a variety of contexts.
0: Yeah. And they're sending out messages that the Ukrainians are responsible for the attacks on the Ukrainian population. I tweeted earlier today. Next, they'll be saying it was the Ukrainian military that invaded Ukraine. Professor Pr- 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 is it your sense, professional, personal Uh, Based on your experience, your knowledge of the situation, the Russians are in fact committing a series of very serious, I don't know if we should even apply the word serious, but committing a series of war crimes in Ukraine.
3: Oh, there's no doubt on the facts. A prima facie case is the way the lawyers would say it. The way the International Criminal Court says it is that there's a reasonable basis to believe that war crimes are being committed. No question about that, whether it's intentional attacks on civilians, or depriving humanitarian relief convoys or starving the civilian population. But here's where I think it's very important to distinguish that the, the mere out, the fact of war crimes does not automatically affix criminal responsibility on a particular commander or a particular unit. Um, and we can talk about how that's done, but to say that somebody is a war criminal means that we've gone through that process of granular evidence and this is called the law of individual responsibility. Uh, so the presence of war crimes simply means that we have the challenge of identifying with admissible evidence in a granular way uh, who's responsible for those. And that's the necessary step to fix criminal responsibility. That's what it's we not, do as prosecutors.
0: Okay, so Russia has a history of behaving in the manner that it's behaving in Ukraine, even worse, Syria and Chechnya. Putin was in power then, he's in power now. No doubt Mr. Putin feels untouchable. Is he, as far as any war crimes retribution is concerned? And I know we're heading into that territory where we're talking about the individual, but is he, do you think he's ever going to be brought to uh, to justice?
3: I don't know whether he will or not, but I do know that he'll look over his shoulder the rest of his life. There are no statute of limitations for these offenses. Um, And the, 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 the major difference between World War II era and now is that this body of law has matured in incredible ways since World War II on the substantive side. But on the criminal side, in the enforcement mechanisms, we also have, you know, people talk about the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Many of those senior Nazis never thought they would face accountability, and they did. Adolf Eichmann in the Israeli context never thought he would face accountability. In Yugoslavia, Karadzic, Milatich, Martic, um, uh, certainly Milosevic, never thought they would face accountability, many in the Rwandan context. Charles Taylor, president of Sierra Leone, never thought he would face accountability. So to me, that's not dispositive. The real challenge here is to build a jurisdiction, a court with jurisdiction and the right body of law, and then me- be methodical in, in applying that body of law against the right people where we can make a criminal case. That's the challenge moving forward.
0: So so how do you do that? Uh, understanding clearly that there's difficulty in, as you've described, prosecuting the individuals in a case involving national leadership, military, powerful groups, um, all committing indictable offenses. How do you build a
3: case? Yeah, I would just give you two Ps because I like to think in alliteration. The first P is the politics. You sustain the political will, um because accountability is non-negotiable right these this body of law i often say is the common heritage of mankind wars are inevitable but every country of the world shares the commitment to this body of law there's no country in the world that can say that law does not apply to us so in order to apply it as we've seen in the balkans and Rwanda and sierra leone etc you have to sustain political will and the second p is uh, particularity Uh, Building one of these cases is is like a a fine mosaic. There's snippets of information that sometimes come from, as you've seen in in Ukraine, signals intelligence. So when the German German government says, we have intercepted phone calls of people reporting war crimes. So that's a piece. Uh, Obviously now in the cell phone age, pictorial evidence, refugee interviews, eyewitness testimony. um, You know, there's now beginning to surface uh, facial recognition technology of soldiers mailing in in the mails from Belarus war, uh, uh, war crimes evidence back home, like things looted from civilian homes. You have to put all of that together like a mosaic, piece by piece by piece, to get a composite view of criminality. And then you move to prosecutions. So the politics is essential, but it's also the particularity of building a precise uh, set of criminal charges. And we just have to be tenacious in doing that this is a long it's a long road but it's you know as i say the wheels of justice grind slowly but they do grind here professor you were
0: personally engaged as i understand in the prosecution of serbian leader slobodan milosevic in the 1990s can you talk to us about that and remind us please of what he did what he was convicted of doing
3: well uh uh, Among a number of other cases, I would say, I mean, I think the key is that once we set up the Yugoslavia Tribunal, the United States engaged in a very conscious deliberate, we used all of our available legal legal tools to build that case. So among others that might have resonance for Ukraine, uh, I took the FBI forensics team uh, into Kosovo to document those crimes against humanity. Uh, Milosevic is in some ways a great example, because like Putin, he never thought he would face accountability. And so there's lessons to be learned about how we get these people on trial. Uh, But in in another way, of course, the case is unfortunate because he died during trial. So we never got to the final point. Um, I think the critical takeaway in that case, as in others, is the mechanics of how we built the evidence and particularly how the United States and Canada and our allies supported those investigations and supported those prosecutions. Uh, They're very carefully built cases. That's why it takes time. And you just have to be very diligent on the details of the law. And that's the lesson from Milosevic for me.
0: Are there more war crimes taking place now? Uh, We look at conflicts around the world and we see and hear about atrocities and atrocious behavior. Is there an increase or is that perception?
3: A little bit of both. I mean, remember that we live in the era of the smartphone. and. You know, a, a corporal with a smartphone can can do things with a strategic consequence. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing the more the seeing evidence that's unfiltered by the governments, even in a place where there's censorship, you can still get real time documentation of that. You now have commercial satellite imagery that you never had before. Uh, you know, you've seen that, for example, with the reporting out of BUCA, when the Russians say, oh, no, 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 those bodies weren't there when we left satellite imagery, commercially available, immediately surfaces to say, oh yes, they were. Uh, you're seeing people capture things in in ways. And so you're right that there's a high visibility over this, uh, but in that way, it's, it's symbolic of the new information era in which we live. And I think that's all to the good, but I'll reiterate that we have to have a, a, a comprehensive mechanism for organizing that, for collating it, for building against the precise details of the law that we have to prove in order to get convictions beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: So remind us, please, of uh, the responsibility of any military as far as its engagement with civilian populations and civilian property. You touched on that when we started our conversation, and I I guess I'm going to go back to my previous question here and ask you whether you see that routinely violated these these days as, uh, as well. We've seen Brutality on various stages, again, around the world in recent years. What's the responsibility of the military?
3: Well, the responsibility in legal terms is to take all feasible precautions uh, to minimize or eliminate damage to civilian lives or civilian property. Uh, In an occupation setting, this is why the law of occupation is particularly important. Anytime you have control over an area or what we say effective control over an area, uh, you're functionally the surrogate government for however transient a time or however long a time. And there you have a much more extensive set of affirmative obligations to protect civilians, to ensure law and order, to ensure uh, in in the language of the treaty, public order and safety, right? Um, So there's affirmative, but it's important to understand that those those duties are also balanced against the the law of Geneva of of waging war. So there's always a, a sort of a balance between permitting the military to accomplish a mission and yet constraining the effects of that violence in appropriate ways and against appropriate people. Um, And that's why the military has an affirmative duty, for example, to have lawyers that are engaged in advising commanders. That's why the military has an affirmative duty to train in this body of law. And where there are violations, an affirmative duty to document violations and to prosecute people where appropriate. All those things flow from the basic principle that civilians are protected from the effects of violence to the greatest extent possible. That's called the principle of distinction. So the the precise legal rule says you will direct your activities against the appropriate persons and property at all times. There's There's no carve out there. There's no room for derogation. You can never, ever, ever intentionally target civilians. Full stop.
0: Understanding that, and everything you've shared with us, and I thank you for this, understanding that, does it surprise you, given your experience in this particular field, in this particular issue, does the depravity that is going on, that people are capable of, armies are capable of, governments are capable of, par- politicians are capable of, does, does it ever surprise you that, that we actually do these things?
3: I think there's a there's a human temptation, and this is why this body of law is so important. There's a human temptation to get into the maelstrom of conflict and to begin to dehumanize an enemy and create uh, essentially two separate moral codes for my people, for my tribe, for my religion, for whatever group you want to define. There's one moral code. And then the human temptation is to say, ah, but these people are different. That tribe is different. That religion is different. So there's a dehumanization that goes with that. Um, Part of that is a natural human instinct. But part of it becomes a self-fulfilling narrative. Um, And I think that's the challenge. And this is why this body of law is so important, because it says to every single participant, but particularly the commanders, the commanders are the ones who are legally responsible for creating the right climate of of respect for people, of compliance with the law, and on the flip side, of of thorough investigations and punishment when the law is, is violated. This idea that because you're in a war no law applies nothing could be more false than that uh, and yet the moral temptation is always there almost ubiquitous in conflicts that's why you'll never see completely perfect enforcement but the failure to perfect perfectly enforce this body of law in no way permits this body of law to be ignored or or relegated to second or third or fourth order status. And that's the balance. We see that almost every battlefield, almost all the time. We just have to maintain the integrity of the law and the professional standards.
0: There's a crisis underway in this country. And we've talked about it some over the last number of months, but it's just getting worse. And it's going to continue to get worse unless we do everything we possibly can to make it better. There are 37 million of us. Each and every one of us is going to need health care at some point in life, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, sometimes to a greater, sometimes to a lesser extent, but we need it. And right now, it's not there for us in the way it needs to be. It's the greatest crisis for individual Canadians and Canadian families the disrepair of our public health care system on a national basis. So you've heard me say this in the past, 5 million Canadians have no family doctor. Well, if you have a family doctor, that means very little to you, likely. I don't blame you for that. But if you're one of the 5 million or about 15% of our national population that does not have a family doctor, that's the primary, the first component part of the healthcare system it's not there for you. So you have to make alternate arrangements. And now we know after the two years of the pandemic, doctors are burned out, nurses are burned out. Um, they're leaving the profession in large numbers. And the backlog is massive. Half a million surgeries waiting to happen. There was a story the other day about a Quebec man who uh, had terrible back pain. Maybe you saw it on globalnews.ca terrible back pain he went to the hospital in quebec and they uh, said well it's this and that the other and did some tests and sent him on his way so he and his family went to mexico on vacation it got so bad he couldn't function at all so he went to hospital in mexico and they discovered cancer and his situation as i last heard a couple of days ago is so severe he can't leave mexico Was it an individual failure in the healthcare system? I have no way of knowing that. But the system is under really tremendous stress, and it's not doing well. And we've talked about that with Dr. Catherine Smart, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart is back with us, along with Linda Silas, the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Dr. Smart, good to have you back. How are you?
4: I'm well. Thanks for having me again.
0: You know, I always ask doctors how you are. Thank you. Because nobody else does. Ms. Silas, how are you? Thank you for joining us.
5: I'm fine. It's sunny in Ottawa, so it's, uh, I'm really well, thank you, Roy. Right.
0: Let's talk about uh, our health care system. And I talked about that, uh, I'll start with you, uh, Miss Silas. I, I talked about that uh, Quebec man because it really struck me the other day. Millions of people have cancer. We have hundreds of thousands of surgeries that are backlogged. We have people who need cancer surgeries. They're not happening. So from the nurse's perspective, how bad is it?
5: It's bad. Uh, you know, regardless if it's the cancer uh, treatment uh, or your, your surgery or your home care, your long-term care facility, uh, the pandemic really hit us hard and everyone is uh, tired in the system. And I can talk from, you know, from personal care workers to our highest level of specialists in the system. They're tired, they need a break, and they can't take a break because we have uh, so many surgeries uh, waiting, so many treatments waiting, and we're all working short. Uh, For me, it's when I hear a nurse and I hear all of them saying the same thing. I go home every night or every morning and I feel I haven't done a good job because there's not enough of me.
0: So they take it very personally, obviously.
5: Yes, I take it. I've I've been in the system for a long time. And I've also been advocating for nurses for a very long time. Nationally, it's been 18 years. And I've never seen it this bad. Uh, uh, I was there in the shortage in 1997 when the federal government got involved. It had task force on medicine, task force on nursing, And they took its job seriously, so we were disappointed with this federal budget where health care was kind of mentioned, but nothing uh, dramatic like we were hoping for.
0: Mm. We'll talk about that in a second. Dr. Catherine Smart, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, you and I have talked about this issue on a number of occasions. It's just getting worse, not getting better. At least, uh, if I just go with surveillance material that I'm hearing, and I suspect the surveillance material reflects what's really going on in the trenches. So for the person who's listening to this program now, the person who is not well, can't get the treatment they require, or the person who says, well, what about me? What if it goes wrong for me or my family? Just in layman's terminology, how bad is it across the country? Well, I
4: think, you know, it is, just like Linda was saying, it is really bad. I mean... We are I think at a real low point and you know I think what's challenging is when you keep talking about the same thing over and over people get a bit numb to it and, and I think you know it's we've been sort of sounding the alarm on the healthcare system for some time without any real action but you know it, it's not a false alarm there are people who are not getting the care that they need there are people like the man you discussed who who aren't aren't always being able to access the investigations that are required to make an accurate diagnosis in a timely way or just don't have that longitudinal relationship with a primary care provider to make sure that their symptoms are being monitored and if they're worsening, they can be investigated properly. So I think, you know, Canadians need to be very worried because we really have two crises. We have the crisis of that community-based care that's so important uh, over time, but we also are seeing that crisis of acute care where there is a real risk that we are not going to be able to continue to care for people and they're not necessarily going to have the system there when they need it um, and and I'm I am deeply worried and this, especially when you think about the human health resource side of it you know if eventually we're not going to have the nurses and doctors showing up and what is that going to mean when that happens and I think we're not too far away from that.
0: So let's talk about that because, I mean, I can talk to you about hallway medicine. I've seen the articles. I've seen it in practice when I've been inside a hospital. It's very disturbing to see. I know I talk to people who say, gee, you know, if I get sick, I don't know if the system's going to take care of me or not. Those are all valid concerns. But what about the issue of burnout? Um, Ms. Silas, you talked about, and we have the doctors and the nurses working together on this, the federations, the union. Um, Ms. Silas, when a nurse goes home and says, I didn't do a really good job today because You know, things are left undone. So they take it extremely personally. What is the burnout rate? How many nurses are saying, I don't want an exact number, but are there significant numbers of nurses who are saying, I can't do this anymore?
5: Yeah, our last survey, which we got the results in January, 94% says they're showing some signs of burnout. Well, that's probably very similar to all Canadian because of the pandemic. But where it really caught our attention is 46% uh, and uh, need clinical help, clinical mental help, because of the burnout symptoms. And that that's the uh, the alarm bells that goes on for everyone. Because honestly, we don't even have enough clinicians, as uh, Catherine was saying, you know, in the community or in primary care to deal with all these mental health issues. Uh, one in two of our nurses are saying, I've had enough. I want to change jobs or I want to completely leave. Uh, So uh, it it is a big issue and all governments of all stripes uh, from locally to federally uh, need to deal with it or we will lose our pressure self-care system and we'll end up to what? What they have in the United States?
0: Okay, so I want to ask you about that and, and the budget and injecting money into the system because just money alone is not the uh, the answer i think you'll both agree with that i understand it needs money but that's what politicians have done they've fired money at it then use football uh, healthcare is a p- political football what about the burnout factor among physicians dr smart
4: it's also very severe you know our recent national physician health survey showed that over 50% of doctors are reporting severe burnout it's almost doubled during the pandemic, 46% of doctors are thinking about cutting back their clinical hours in the next two years. So, you know, if we think we have an access to care crisis now, what's that going to look like when the people who are in the system aren't able to keep up this pace um, and and do start working less? So that's really deeply concerning. Um, And, you know, and and as Linda was saying, it's really at a level we haven't seen and the severity of it as well. You know, 6% of doctors were experiencing regular suicidal ideation. You know, these are caregivers, people that are experts in mental health and, and, and health of other people. And they themselves are so unwell that that almost one in ten has contemplated ending their lives. So, you know, I, I think that just really speaks to the depth of despair that people are experiencing and how broken the system is. You know, this is not just us sort of saying it. It's a real problem. And, and I think if our system is breaking the people inside of it to this degree. We need to really be deeply worried about what's happening there.
0: So, uh, uh, Doctor Smart, what are we going to? What's it going to take to really address and start to? Because we can't do it in 24 hours, but start to turn this thing around and and make it an environment where the healthcare professionals can operate professionally and with enthusiasm and some energy reserves, and patients can look toward a system that will take care of them. What's it going to take?
4: Well, I think it's going to take a, a level of collaboration and reimagining that we really haven't seen in 60 years. You know, I I think it's not really in anybody's political interest to really perhaps admit or own the fact that the healthcare system is as broken as it is. And, and I think that's an impediment to moving forward with the level of collaboration that's needed to solve this issue. But I think if we could get our politicians on side to really be willing to be honest about the state of things and recognize that they need to work on this right we need to move past the partisanship the politics and recognize this is a issue for everyone in this country um, and we need our federal provincial governments to start collaborating with us in healthcare to solve this problem so I think that's really the first step and and I think we have to be willing to do the deep work right what we have is a system that's had layers of band-aids applied to it now for decades um, and there needs to be some fundamental shifts in how things are done to really create the change that's needed to make the system functional for patients and providers but they're not superficial changes right they're, they're, it really is digging deep into how things are structured how they're organized how people are paid uh, the whole way the system operates needs an overvamp and a overhaul um, but you know that's not going to happen without the politicians at the table willing to do that work with us and and I think that's the concern is you know how much longer are we just going to march down this road of the status quo spending billions of dollars on a system that's not performing nearly as well as it should. And that's yeah. where we are right now. And we're not really, I think, at this point, seeing the commitment to, to do the work that needs to be done.
0: Yeah, it's very concerning. Very concerning to know that politicians, governments, have their own favorite uh, projects, and they're happy to throw billions of dollars in their personal enthusiasm um, and professional enthusiasm at their projects. But healthcare, which affects each and every person in this country, each and every one of us, it's well, you know, it's political football. Uh, Miss Silas, what is your sense? What has to be done? What, what, What's it going to take to make the system start to be representative of every single person who is listening to this program across this country now, and you and Dr. Smart as well? What's it going to take?
5: It's very similar to what uh, Catherine was saying. You know, you said earlier in your show, Roy, that we're a country of 37 million uh, people. That is a very small population for the extent of our country, from urban to rural to remote to very remote to the north. You know, we're, the state of California has more population than we have in our whole country. So we need to look nationally, bring all the experts together and do some coordination. Look what works in other countries of the world. What are their best practices? How do we have a a sustainable health human resource strategy how do we focus on retention how do we tell those 50 55 years old what does it take to keep you in the system and i believe there's a need to change the culture of healthcare. care we need to move uh, away from uh, the workers in the system are martyrs they'll be there regardless they're just like elastic bands they'll keep it because they're there for the patients don't get me wrong For nurses, they love being nurses. That's why they're still there. That's why they they went in during the pandemic. That's why they do all the overtime. They just hate their working conditions. And, you know, show us a little bit of respect. Your show is in Ontario. Like, let's be real, Bill 124, like, really, why were nurses, why were healthcare workers hit so hard with a bill that showed no respect at all uh, for the work they were doing prior to the pandemic? And into the pandemic, so it's
1: show on My show is, on, uh,
0: my show is in, in Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. So we cover a good part of the country, and the and the issues and the concerns, are probably quite similar province to province, government to government, regardless yeah. of what the political alignment of a government happens to be, whichever party, it happens mm-hmm. to be. Do, do you have? If uh, we have a minute le- left here. Dr. Smart, do you have any real hope that things will change?
4: Well, I think we have to hold out hope. You know, I I believe that this is such a critical issue for our country, for Canadians, for our future. There is not going to be a healthy economy or a thriving nation without a healthy population. And, you know, obviously I'm deeply committed to this work and to the health of Canadians, so I I feel I have to maintain hope hope that things can change. But I also know, you know, it's not going to be easy, and and we do need to be serious about it, and we need to start. Um, And I think that's my biggest frustration is, is... Where's the action? And I, it's just clearly time to move forward. Uh, many of us are aligned, uh, we want to do the work and we just need the government to get on board with us.
0: All right, let's get to our good friend, Dr. Eric Kam, macroeconomist, professor at Ryerson University. And we'll talk about this federal budget of ours. Dr. Kam, you had some thoughts on it, strong thoughts on what we might expect when we spoke last weekend. What do you think about what was delivered
1: Well, hello, Roy. Um, Well, I have to tell you that what I did is I set my sights low. And as long as you keep the bar very low, then you generally can't be disappointed or unimpressed. But of course, as usually happens with liberal governments, I was wrong. Um, I don't find the budget to be very much of anything. And I made a joke earlier this week on one of your sister stations that to me, it's like going to the dentist thinking you have three cavities and coming out with two and being happy. But the reality is you still have two cavities. I don't see this budget, Roy, and we can dig into it. I don't see it as a driver for economic growth. And in a lot of ways, what's going on right now, the positivity you're seeing I think is the fault of the Conservatives. They came out and they were so loud and proud for about two weeks saying the spending is going to be out of control and they gave three digits of billions of numbers. So when the spending comes in at two digits of billions of numbers, people say, okay, well, the spending isn't that bad and it's not out of control. But if you actually go through the budget point by point, it is that bad. The spending is out of control and none, none of the spending that I see is going to give us any economic improvement, Roy. So, as I generally do with the these tax and spend budgets, I give them a failing grade.
0: And these uh, tax and spend budgets—if you look at something, if you look at what we lived with uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, the uh, the billions of dollars of deficit was nowhere near, which seems to have become sort of standard and okay in the thinking of a lot of people. We, there's, there's no, there there's isn't an understanding, I think, uh, Dr. Cam, right across the country and across the spectrum, that what you owe, you have to pay back. And if you owe a trillion dollars, federal debt, and then you have provincial debt, and you have families who are in debt, it's, it's, it's not a recipe for successful financial reality.
1: It's a recipe for financial disaster. Now, countries like Canada do not and will not go broke. So I would ask the good listenership not to say that one day they will not see the country in receivership so we must be doing well. We're not be doing, we're not doing well. The world is a spectrum and we're supposed to leave a country to our children and our grandchildren and we are leaving a fiscal financial mess. It is a mess, Roy, and the and the debt is never ever going to be repaid. You and I said it two years ago that if they continued with this type of spending, it could never be repaid. And we found that. And so I look at some of the points of the budget, if I may, Roy, and I say to myself, well, I don't see what's here. What here would make you feel good? They put in this forty thousand first time home buyer savings thing. But you know what? That could have been accomplished by just waiving the requirement that you have to pay back your RSP. All the things for zero emissions and green this and green that, well, that's just the carbon tax re-wrapped up in a fancier dress. And we know that this is the wrong time for new taxes. Things like Indigenous spending and those type of infrastructures and increased money to the military, yeah, that can make you feel good. It's a feel-good story, but not a driver of economic growth. When you look at what economic growth is, it depends on consumption, it depends on investment, And it depends on government spending. This focuses on one of those, government spending. And if the only part of your economy growing is the public sector, Roy, you and I both know that you're in big trouble trouble.
0: And where's the incentive for the private sector to keep on investing and growing in this particular budget? And I'll add one other thing. You mentioned the military and Mr. Trudeau's talks and pledges and Ms. Freeland talks and pledges, some $8 billion will be spent on the military. Well, it's very interesting that General Andrew Leslie, who was the commander of the Canadian Army and in fact was a Liberal Member of Parliament, ran for Mr. Trudeau in 2015, stayed a Liberal Member of Parliament until 2019 and then decided not to run again. He tweeted uh, yeah, uh, Friday after, or maybe Thursday after the budget, saying, okay, so now they're, and I'm paraphrasing, so they're going to spend $8 billion on the military, so let's take a look at the $12 billion that they decided not to spend or remove from the spending after 2015, how's that up, How that, how's that a win, you take away twelve and you give eight.
1: Roy, it's not a win. There's two examples here of it not being a win. Number one is everyone knows, everybody knows that military spending is low-hanging fruit. You can do it anytime and you can always make your books look better. But the last time I looked, Manitoba wasn't attacking Ontario. So I'm not exactly sure what this money is going to unless it's to make the United Nations feel good about themselves. And I'm not sure why Canada is worrying about that when we're in the financial situation we're in. And again, number two, $40,000 to new homebuyers. What on God's green earth is $40,000 going to do when 80% of immigrants to the, to the country come to the GTA, come to the 416905? That's going to do nothing to address the supply problem. Oh, no. But then you say the government's committed $2 billion to building new homes. Where? Where are they going to build new homes? They're not going to build them in the 416-905. As they say in Yiddish, they're going to go in Yechepitzville. So unless you're willing to to relocate yourself, your family, or your company three hours north, south, east, or west, I don't see how this is a benefit. I don't see how this... I'm not going to say it again. This government did not address economic growth. It did not address debt recovery it was low hanging fruit from top to bottom
0: we do need to spend money on the military because we have a responsibility to defend ourselves we can't just hide under the american umbrella and we have an agreement a nato agreement that two percent of our gdp is supposed to go to military spending it doesn't happen it hasn't happened and dr cam it isn't going to happen regardless of what they said on thursday
1: that's very true that's very true Again, the, and by the way, with GDP creeping up ever so slowly, that requirement is becoming less and less important. You know, one day I want to come on the radio with you, Roy, and tell you all of the positive things I see. And you know what? The good Lord willing, one day we'll do it, but it's not today.
0: No, and then you're going to have me in your class as well.
1: I will be honored to have you sit in my lecture hall anytime in September, Roy.